Welcome to Lost in the Wilderness, a priest and a rabbi explore Exodus. I am Carl Stevens. I'm the priest. And I am Daniel Bogard, the rabbi. And uh, we are not together as we were last week in Cincinnati. We are actually further apart than normal because, Daniel, you are off in Memphis. In Memphis, and my apologies to uh, listeners who find me even harder to listen to than normal, that uh, I forgot my fancy microphone in Cincinnati, so I am recording just on my in-law's laptop. We're going to have a little bit of background noise, but that's okay. And uh, in Memphis right now, uh, you were telling me before we started recording, there is all these Martin Luther King Jr. uh, festivities going on. Yeah, 50th Um, anniversary uh, of his assassination. Uh, Yeah. Or as uh, uh, I see a lot of Jews posting, it's his 50th yard site. We have a tradition of honoring the anniversary of someone's death. Uh, So the whole city, though, is uh, preparing for this. There are conferences happening everywhere. The hotels are bursting at the seams. Uh, and there's going to be a big event tonight at the Lorraine Motel at 6.01 p.m. when uh, Dr. King was assassinated. Wow. And, um, I mean, I don't know much about Memphis. Has his legacy played out well in the city? I mean, like, he was there to support a strike when he was assassinated. Is Are his concerns for justice um, still being forwarded by other people? Yeah, you know, I think for a lot of uh Memphians, uh, I think that's the way we describe them. Uh, King's assassination was a dividing line in the city and, uh, sort of racism, white supremacy and segregation became the forefront issues of this town, uh, following Dr. King's assassination, even though Dr. King really had no previous sort of a deep connection with the city, uh, outside of his larger work. Uh, but it, it became the issue that defined Memphis, uh, for really a generation. And, you know, recently I think the city has begun to embrace that legacy rather than shy from it. Uh, so the civil rights museum here, for instance, is incredible, just an incredible jewel of a place. I took my, uh, uh, six-year-old last, uh, last time we were here and he was blown away by it. Okay. Huh. All right. Well, someday I will have to return to Memphis. I only went once, and and the only thing I went to see there was Graceland. So um, <laughs> the other <laughs> Memphis destination. The other Memphis destination. Yes, I saw a, I believe, a gold lame suit, uh, but that was not nearly as uplifting as important. I'm uh, sure. I'll tell you. Actually, one uh, thing I noticed when I was here is there are a lot of church groups that take you know ninth, tenth grade trips to Memphis. Uh, typically for this reason, they go to the civil rights museum. Yeah. Yeah. I've actually known some people who have gone from Columbus to do, um, uh, tours like civil rights tours of the South. That's a really interesting idea. Hmm. Smart. Okay. Well, anyway, enough, uh, enough crosstalk here at the beginning. Should we plunge into chapter 27? Yeah. Let's jump in before we uh, go off on a tangent again. Okay, good, good. And um, we should say from the start uh, that for the first 20 verses, there is only one Midrash. One Midrash. Um, and you were telling me that's because the the Torah portion actually splits at um, uh, verse 20. The verse 20 is the start of the Yeah, so the rabbinic divisions of the Torah – 
uh, we're initially not concerned with being able to find things quickly, uh, which is the concern mm-hmm. when we add in the later chapters and verses. Uh, you know, right, because you'd be reading it sequentially anyway. So exactly, and you're reading it from a scroll. So literally you're turning it. It's not like you can yeah. uh, lose your page. Uh, but yeah. their bigger question was, where do you begin and end each week's reading to make sure that every Jew everywhere in the world is reading the same section of the Torah uh, no matter where they are that week? Uh, so uh, the divisions are based on that, and sometimes the divisions divide in different places. I just said divide uh, all sorts of different ways there. Um, uh, and so... That's what's happening here, is that the rabbis begin a new Torah portion at verse 20. Uh, and so like any uh, human, I think they uh, kind of run out of steam at the end of Torah portions with their commentaries. Uh, so we have almost nothing for the first 20 verses here. And then once they begin the new Torah portion with verse 20, nothing for the first 19 verses, uh, once they begin with verse 20, we get tons and tons of content as suddenly they have all sorts of new sermons to give. Well, that reminds me that one of the um, one of the things that made Christianity possible was an, a new technology, which is always a cool idea. And that technology was the codex, which, what we would now come to think of as a book. So this idea of binding together leaves of parchment and then later paper um, so that you could actually flip through and find things uh, is is what gave like the early writers who were always wanting to go back and reference, you know, like uh, the Hebrew scriptures, for instance, a chance to do that. And um, I don't know, we often, like, I think we often get afraid of technology and change, but in fact, uh, its influence is always surprising and always, you know, comes out of nowhere. Um, and uh, we owe who we are, who our tradition is, to it in some major ways. Yeah, it's a technological revolution. I mean, it really is. Yeah, exactly. Right. Something simple like the book. I think um, Atlas Obscura has been doing a bracket to see, like, what mundane technology is going to win. And there was one that was – it was something like paper versus uh, – I can't even remember – something else – Completely so, like sewers or something, you know, like what has had the greatest only, change on human only, life? Uh, only mundane um, until you don't have them, I think, yeah. Exactly, and then you're dying of cholera or you don't have Christianity. <laughs> so yeah. anyway, um, okay, so enough crosstalk. Let's let's jump into this. We probably will not be interrupting much after the first two verses. We'll probably shoot right through all the cubits until we hit verse 20, and then we'll have a lot to say, so that'll be a little strange. Uh, let's do that. Um, let me do the two, first two verses, and then you can interrupt me, and then you can take it from there. Okay, so, and you shall make the altar of acacia wood five cubits in length and five cubits in width. The altar shall be square and three cubits in height. And you shall make its horns on its four corners from the same piece its horn shall be. You shall overlay it with bronze. So I, I actually have the word copper here. You have bronze? I do, but I'm not sure it matters. Yeah, and I'm not sure. Uh, I'm sure there's a difference between these two things, but I'm not sure either of us are qualified to say that, it sounds like. Um, Okay, it's definitely one of those things that's sort of goldy in color. Yeah, yep. Um, Okay, so we've got a commentary here. Uh, It's our first uh, attempt at a rabbinic sermon. Uh, 
uh, right? And that, I think, is what commentary ultimately ends up being. It's an attempt to make an ancient verse relevant to a modern listener. Yeah. Uh, in this case, modern is about 2,000 years ago. Uh, so for a Midrash Haggadol, the great collection of Midrash, the big collection of Midrash, uh, they ask the question, why copper? Why are they overlaying it with copper? And the answer here is just like copper tarnishes and then can be scrubbed clean, so the people of Israel, although they sin, they repent and are forgiven. Mm-hmm. Uh, thoughts? Well, so I'm looking at a note in Robert Alter who is commenting on the horns instead and saying, you know, horns were on a lot of altars in the West Semitic world um, as a cultic ornamentation. But then this meaning was given to them that they were in a way like funnels, that they were how divinity was funneled down into the altar. And that blood from the sacrifices was sprinkled on the horns of the altar. And maybe that meant that they were the most sacred place of the altar and also, and this is where we get to sin, um, that if a person was seeking sanctuary, they would cling to the horns of the altar because they were the most sacred and therefore the most defensive spot. Although he also says practically it could just be that they were the best place to hold on to. Um, but there is always been horns as handlebars. Is that what I'm hearing here? Yeah, exactly. That's what you're hearing. That's what we're talking okay. about. Horns as handlebars. Maybe uh, we just named the episode. But um, you know, this idea of sanctuary and sin um, is interesting to me because if it was it was still used for quite a long time. Actually, it's still being used today. There's a church here in Columbus where. A woman who um, is undocumented has been staying and claiming sanctuary from ICE. Um, so this idea that if you sinned against society, if you if or I, I wouldn't call what she did sin in any way. I just want to be clear. But if you know you were in trouble and the law was looking for you, you could go to a church and you could go into the sanctuary, which was a very small area of the church, and then you would just basically have to stay there. But as long as you were there, the law could not touch you. And as long as you had friends who would bring you food and stuff, so you wouldn't starve to death. Yeah, and I, you know, what's interesting here is none of these laws exist in the United States, or very few of them do in very few places. And yet, it is a cultural custom that continues to be respected oftentimes by the entities of the law. Right. It's it's tough yeah. for that uh, police chief to order the raid into the sanctuary of the church. Right. It would look awfully bad. Look on awfully bad. Place. And that continues to have a huge amount of sway. Yeah. Well, that also gets to another thought about sin. I'm just full of thoughts about sin today because I'm that kind of priest. But I'm uh, reading a book by an author named Thandeka um, about whiteness and and becoming white. Uh, she herself is African-American and uh, she wrote this book. I think it came out in 2007. So it's about 10 years old now, but um, she started out by realizing that when she asked pe- white people to describe themselves as white and to describe other white people as white in conversation, uh, she actually called it the race game. And the idea was that like for, for a week, um, anytime you mention somebody's name, you would have to preface their name with um, their racial category. <laughs> so, uh, just well, sure, this happens where you hear white people all the time. 
mention that someone is African-American when it doesn't have any particular uh, relevance to the conversation. Exactly. So, um, you know, so if I were referring to my friend Karen, I would have to say in conversation, uh, white Karen said this. Right? <laughs> and what, what Pandeka found is that nobody wanted to do this. Um, she tried for a long time, you know, she would suggest it to people at dinner parties or after lectures and people would be terrified by the very assumption. Uh, finally, a University of Chicago graduate student did it and um, said that it would end conversations and, uh, you know, it would alienate him from other people, other white people immediately. And she goes into this very interesting discourse on shame about it. And what she says is that we feel shame when we feel differenced from the community around us. Like we have somehow broken a, a societal, societal or cultural taboo. But more than that, it's not that we've just broken it and then are going to go back to normal. It's that something about us, something inherent to our nature, parts from the culture or the society or the community we live in. And we learn to repress that something through feelings of shame. Hmm. Um, I I don't know. I like, I find that, and I'm talking too much. I apologize to your listeners, but I find that in terms of sin to be a completely different way of looking at it, you know, to say, um, yes, yeah, sometimes we make mistakes and we do things and we hurt people, but we have a process for dealing with that. We feel guilty. We go and we make amends or reparations and it's all okay. But probably the sin, quote unquote, that we feel the most is our inherent difference from the communities that are forming us and that we want to belong to. Um, and that leads us to deeply repress whatever is going on within ourselves. Um, and and uh, that we sometimes refer to that community sense of what is right and what it isn't as sin. So like in terms of sexuality, this is just obvious, right? Like why did LGBTQ people spend years and years repressing who they were? It's because it was labeled sin by their community that they desired to belong to. Anyway, I've gone on far too long for a fairly simple question about sin, but um, I think, I think we need to note that it has both individual dimensions, you know, the, the, relationship break when we do something wrong, but it also has these profound cultural, societal, and community dimensions, which we might sometimes want to challenge, whether the culture, the society, and the community are right. Wow, I'm really chewing on this. This was totally a different direction than I imagined. <laughs> yeah. No, no, right? This is not what I normally think of when I think of um, sort of classically Christian notions of sin. Uh well, part of the problem is we, we're having to rethink those. I don't – in Judaism, have you run into a lot of people who kind of hate notions of sin because they say, why – you know, why should I think about sin or think about my, my sin? I've done nothing wrong. Why is the synagogue imposing this So, yes, but I would tell you that more often than not when that happens, the person has a conception of sin that sounds a lot more Christian than Jewish. Um, Interesting. So what is a Jewish con conception of sin? I, so a Jewish conception of sin, it's actually uh, the, the word for sin, chet, is an archery term. Uh, and it yeah. means to miss the mark. 
So that right. there is, yes. right, and it goes back to there's no notion of us living in a fallen wor- world for Judaism. There's no fall from grace. Uh, so there's no original sin or inherent sinfulness that has to be corrected. Uh, so instead, life is sort of a constant uh, game is the wrong word, but uh, a constant process of reflecting on the distance between the person you have been in the person you could have been. Uh, so the, the Greek for the Jewish term you just used okay. is harmatia, which also means missing the mark. And that is um, often in, in contemporary Christian theologians that is also oh, interesting. As described. Interesting. Um, because yeah. the, the notion, because it's related to archery, is that you can make a correction, and that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to do tshuva, correct the difference, and you take another shot, just as you get to take another shot in archery uh, once you've recognized your mistake. And right. the metaphor even works to the next piece, too, which is, and you get to take another shot, but the hole that you created with your missed shot doesn't go away. So that then describes a kind of guilt-based sin where you make a mistake and do something wrong and then can go and make reparations or or change of life. Is there a Jewish conception of kind of societal or cultural notions of sin which may in themselves be flawed? uh, Tell me more what you mean by that. Uh, Well, I, I, I mean like for instance notions of race, like whiteness, blackness. Etc. You know, like these, uh, or or sexuality, or whatever. Gotcha. Like these are a society or a cultural de- culture deciding that something is quote unquote sinful, but actually that society or culture could be entirely wrong. Yes, yes. I, I mean, I guess what I would say is that ultimately that becomes the most significant issue for all of us in modernity, which is how do we reconcile inherited morality with a sense of ethics that's based on an observable world, right? Um, it's, it's not so different from the science religion right. question. Uh, now we're just talking ethics and religion. Uh, and, you know, I would say yeah. for the vast majority of American Jews, uh, the answer has been that it's not Torah if it's not ethical. Um, hmm. So even things in Torah, it, in the Torah itself, you know, for instance, we've seen like the slaughter of Amorites and Hittites, etc. Uh, the ethical nature of that might now be questioned, and they the response might just so, be like, yeah, so, that's not uh, actually Torah. You know, we've talked a lot about Maimonides and this idea that he creates that says that if good science conflicts with your understanding of Torah, it means your understanding is wrong. Uh, so I'm a student of uh, mm-hmm. Rabbi David Hartman of a blessed memory. Uh, and he expands Maimonides notion to the realm of ethics where he takes this exact same principle. And he says that any Torah or a- any understanding of Torah that is in conflict with the ethical is a bad understanding of Torah. Okay. I, I think this is a moment where our two traditions are aligning in a lot of ways as we respond to modernity, because we could talk about like traditional notions of sin and the fall, et cetera. Um, but the conversation in Christianity today, at least in the uh, more progressive circles that I run in, 
uh, is not necessarily about that, right? It is about how do we uh, come to a new understanding of sin, you know, say that it is still an important concept, you know, don't pretend that everything is right with the world or with ourselves, um, but find new ways yeah. of casting light yeah. onto its importance and its meaning. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I really like what you are thinking in terms of using notions of sin to talk about racism and white supremacy and transphobia and homophobia and Islamophobia and so on and so forth. Um, these sort of societal systemic issues. Uh, there might be a language here. Uh, it might be a, to, to borrow a term, right. it, it might be a redemption of sin for us. It, yeah, that's a beautiful term. I love that. Um, it's a very difficult language to find. Like, this is hard work. I remember in seminary, we were reading uh, Richard Foster's famous book, Celebration of Discipline, uh, where he was, he's actually very homophobic in the course of a otherwise uh, fine and honorable book. And we were having this discussion in class, right? And we were like, well, what do we do with his homophobia? Um, and the professor said, well, we just have to think of it as sin. Um, but I responded, I said, well, the problem is that he's calling uh, LGBTQ people sinful. And if we just call him sinful in response, all we're ever doing is calling each other sinful, right? Like we're not resolving this. And that's why I think this, um, I think Thandeka's book feels really important to me right now because you could say that Foster um, is guilty of the kind of breaking of relationship type of sin where, you know, you can, you can change. Um, whereas gay and lesbian people are not guilty of that type of sin. They're not, I don't think they're guilty of sin at all. I think if we were to cast that light, we would have to cast it on a society that, that rejected, marginalized, and frankly, physically abused them. Um, and say that that's a kind of shame based sin where you just know that you are different from the rules that surround you. Anyway, we've gone on way too long. But. I, so we've gone on way too long, yeah. but I want to take it one more step actually, because you really intrigued me there. Um, because I think that there are, you know, when I, when I think about people who say that the political correctness has gotten mm -hmm. out of control, which is certainly not my position. Um, I, I think that's often followed by something racist actually. Um, but I think that they would agree with everything you just hmm. said. They would. Why, why would they? Um, right. A sense that they are being shamed for their positions, that they themselves today are living in a world where they are the victims of a shaming campaign. I, again, I think it's different. I think our morality is right or our ethics is right and their morality is wrong. I, I, it's where I happen to be on this, but the relativism is true in both directions. Hmm. That, so here's what, so the smarter thing that I've heard about this, my friend Agnes said, which is, Political correctness doesn't mean that you can't speak. You can still say whatever you want. It just means that now somebody is going to argue back, right? So you can hold yeah, your totally. homophobic, racist point of view, which 50 years ago would have been 
standard, totally acceptable. And 50 years ago, uh, women, minorities, uh, LGBTQ people wouldn't have felt at liberty to talk back. Now they do. And so when you get all defensive about that, what you're essentially saying is not, I want freedom to speak. What you're saying is, I want freedom to repress other people from speaking because they might argue with me. Uh, yeah, we're definitely yeah. on the same page there. Okay. Anyway, uh, let's let's rush through until we get uh, to verse twenty. We're far down the rabbit hole. Fortunately, there are no more commentaries yeah. until verse twenty. Will you read from here? Because uh, I've just been talking endlessly. Uh, happily, uh, though I'm not sure you've been talking endlessly. Uh, verse three. Make the pails for removing its ashes, as well as its scrapers, basins, flesh hooks, and fire pans. Make all its utensils of copper. Make for it a grating of meshwork in copper, and on the mesh, make four copper rings at its four corners. Set the mesh below, under the ledge of the altar, so it extends to the middle of the altar, and make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with copper. The pole shall be inserted into the rings, so that the poles remain on two sides of the altar when it is carried. I feel like I am making one of those announcements on the plane before you. <laughs> um, uh, so it, let's back up for one second here. And remember that this is all in preparation for how the ancient world dealt with sin. Yeah. Right. Um, and actually, I think there's something beautiful to it. Right. Uh, one of the classic misunderstandings, I think, of the Jewish notion of sin is that sacrifices were required required for the forgiveness of sin. Mm -hmm. And actually the whole notion is that by the time you get to the point of sacrifice, you've already done the process of chuva of correction that itself leads, that itself is the forgiveness. You're not the same person as the person who did that original wrong thing. And the uh, sacrifice is the end of, of that process. It is a public statement both to you and to your community that you are no longer in that state. Um, you know, I, for instance, felons who go through a process of prison don't get that. They never get readmitted. They don't get to offer that sacrifice, uh, at least in the United States, right? Lots of yeah, other countries right. they do. Um, but even I think, you know, in terms of our own sense of guilt for the things we've done in our lives, right? How powerful is it to have a moment where after that you're not allowed to feel guilty for it anymore. Yeah, no doubt. That would be amazing. Um, and also what you're saying is this is a, in many ways about the practice and not the end result that it is through going through the practice of repentance uh, that you change and the act of sacrifice at the end is, is uh, a marker like a transition marker, but it's not the thing itself. Yeah. Yeah, Exactly. Um, you know, I wonder if we, many of us think of some of our modern rituals this way, um, right. I'm thinking of conversion rituals, uh, whether it's baptism or going to the mikvah or, um, right. All sorts of other pieces where, it, well, I think it's certainly a problem with the idea of altar calls in Christianity, you know, where you're supposed to just have this sudden moment of conversion and change. Um, but of course, People have to go for altar calls again and again and again because uh, they haven't actually entered into the process of change. They're just trying to skip ahead to the end result. Man, if only we could. 
can we skip to verse 20 then? Is that what you're saying? Uh, uh, no, I mean, I really want to hear about the Cubits. Uh, okay, I think we we're in verse uh, 6. Uh, in May, uh, eight, eight, actually. Eight. Oh, well, eight. well yeah. that's even better. <laughs> uh, make it hollow of boards as you were shown on the mountain, so shall they be made. Uh, so, again, back to the reference of Sinai here, right? This is a divine idea. Yeah. You shall make the enclosure of the tabernacle. On the south side, a hundred cubits of hangings of fine twisted linen for the length of the enclosure on that side, with its twenty posts and their twenty sockets of copper, the hooks and bands of the posts to be silver. Again, a hundred cubits of hangings for its length along the north side, with its twenty posts and their twenty sockets of copper, the hooks and bands of the posts to be of silver. For the width of the enclosure on the west side, fifty cubits of hangings with their ten posts and their ten sockets. For the width of the enclosure on the front, or east side, 50 cubits. 15 cubits of hangings on the one flank, with their three posts and their three sockets. 15 cubits of hangings on the other flank, with their three posts and their three sockets. And for the gate of the enclosure, a screen of 20 cubits of blue, purple, and crimson yarns, and fine twisted linen, done in embroidery with their four posts and their four sockets. All the posts round the enclosure shall be banded with silver, and their hooks shall be of silver. Their sockets shall be of copper. The length of the enclosure shall be a hundred cubits, and the width fifty throughout, and the height five cubits, with hangings of fine twisted linen. The sockets shall be of copper. All the utensils of the tabernacle, for all of its service, as well as all of its pegs and all of the pegs of the court, shall be of copper." And that is the end of the Torah portion, according to the rabbis. Okay, so that is where the stitching would come in, binding the pages uh, Probably not literally. That sort of just happens wherever the sheet runs out for the particular scribe who's writing. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Uh, but that oh, would be okay. where you would finish reading in one particular week. Okay. Um, and this is a week where everybody's out in the lobby having a drink or using exactly. the bathroom. Exactly, exactly. As we um, established last week. All right, well, let's get to the hot stuff. Not not that we haven't already talked some pretty hot sin here, but um, uh, verse 20, now, you know, there are two verses left in this chapter. One of them has uh, six or seven midrash laid out for it here. So I'll read the verse, and then let's go through these midrash. Let's do it. Yeah, and again, awesome. I think we can think of these midrashim as attempts at sermons. So maybe we can even grade these sermons. You know, it just occurs to me that I uh, keep referring them in the singular, and I should be calling them midrashim. I apologize. No, uh, you totally are uh, en- Englishifying, which I do too, right? Midrashes. Oh, um, okay. Uh, but I like midrashim better. It sounds it does. It nice ton. Okay, verse 20. As for you, you shall command the Israelites that they take you clear oil of beaten olives for the light to kindle a lamp perpetually. All right, that's, that's it. A big that's verse. a big verse. Uh, so Let's first of all, we can see, I think, why the rabbis decided this was the beginning of a new section. Uh, yes. Right. We're, we're not describing what the uh, instruments of the temple need to be made of and how they are to be made anymore. Right. Or we are, but a different piece. Right now we're dealing with the oil that will be used in the lamps. Yes. Okay, we've gone from hangings to oil, and therein lay all the difference. 
there and lay all the difference. So actually, one of the really interesting things about this Torah portion, uh, which is going to go for a, a few chapters here, uh, is that it is the only Torah portion after Moses is born that does not, in fact, mention Moses. Uh, this Torah portion, by the way, goes through the uh, middle of chapter 30. Okay. So Moses is not being mentioned. Uh, Aaron is going to get mentioned a lot. But I believe you were telling me there is a reason why Moses isn't mentioned, or at least an ascribed reason. Or at least a sermon attempting to deal with that, right? Um, And the reason given here, and this is from a commentator known as the Baal Haturim, uh, who usually actually is known for his numerology of the Bible, sort of think ancient uh, Bible codes kind of guy. Okay. Uh, I always have trouble with him. Uh, He says the reason for this, the reason that Moses isn't mentioned, uh, is when the people of Israel sinned with the golden calf, coming up in chapter 32, uh, Moses said to God, if you do not forgive them, erase me from the book that you have written. This was realized in this particular parsha, this particular portion of the Torah, uh, since the censure of a righteous person, even if made conditional on an unfulfilled stipulation, always has some effect. Okay. So Moses has kind of demanded censure and therefore is being censured for through these chapters. Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, or at least, right, that's, that's the sermon being given here. And it's that end line which turns it into a sermon. Uh, mm-hmm. The censure of a righteous person, even if made conditional on an unfulfilled stipulation, always has some effect. You get the feeling that maybe the Baal Turim had a rumor going around about him at this point or something. Right. <laughs> and he was feeling the effects, even though he knew it wasn't Exactly. True. Yes. Well, that is, that is psychologically and societally true. Um, okay. And now we have a cavalcade of rabbis whom we really haven't heard from before. So we have Baal Haturim. And so tell me about Baal Haturim. Right, so, you were just talking about uh, him. Yeah, so again, he's this uh, uh, numerology guy considered one of the most significant commentators. Uh, he actually... And when, when and where is he from? So his real name is Jacob Ben Asher. Uh, the name of the book that he writes, the main book is called The Tour, uh, and it's actually a, a Jewish legal code, uh, but he okay. also has a commentary on the Torah. Uh, and it's actually one of the sort of classic things in Judaism is if you write a book that becomes a central book, your name becomes the book. Uh. So. He becomes known simply as the Baal Haturim, the uh, master of the tour. Um, That's what Baal means? Because the way it's spelled, it sounds like the ancient god Baal. Oh, yeah, it it does. Um, Yeah. Yeah, interesting. I'm sure there's an... But it means master. master. Yeah, it can also mean uh, a traditional word for husband as well. Ah, interesting. Okay. Okay, so we have him with his numbers. He would be a. a uh, and I don't think I told you he was uh, born in 1270 and lived in uh, Toledo, Spain. Okay, so once again, he's a, a Spanish Jew, which so many of these rabbis are. I mean, that in some ways it must have been a golden age and a golden place. It was, um, and it was under Islam, right? So they, I wonder where the numerology comes from, you know, I mean, is 
the interest sparked by Arabic numeral uh, numeral systems? So, you know, I don't know my Spanish history well enough offhand, but I wonder when Toledo becomes Christian. Uh, I don't know, but the conquest is not completed until 1492, and Toledo, I think, is... I, I'm not sure. We would have to check that out. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, on to our next commentary. Okay, and this is uh, Or Hachaim. Or Hachaim, yes. Uh, so light, light of the life. Uh, so we, Wow. This is, again, one of these guys who's named after the book that he writes. Uh, his name is Chaim Ibn Attar. Uh, so you can tell that he is coming from a, another Muslim context by his name, right? Ibn. Uh, mm-hmm. it's the same thing as Ben in Hebrew, son of. Uh, oh, okay. So he's born in Morocco at the end of the 17th century uh, and dies in Jerusalem. Uh, in the middle of the 18th century. Okay. So he's later. He's significantly later. Significantly later. Significantly later. And is part of sort of the earliest waves of Jews that eventually uh, become Zionist. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Um, All right. And his Midrash, he says, the word Tatsaveh, you shall command, also means you shall connect and you shall bond. So the name of this Torah portion, is Tatsave, Tatsave. which is uh, okay. which is you shall command exactly. Okay. Thus, the verse can also be read as God saying to Moses, "And you shall bond with the children of Israel, for every Jewish soul has at its core a spark of the soul of Moses." So he's not named here, but really he's all over the place because he's in every Jewish soul. Yes, exactly. Uh, right. Moses may not be in the Torah portion, but he's wherever you go. And, uh, you know, I mentioned before we started recording that this is a little bit like the end of Spike Lee's movie, Malcolm X, where the kids stand up and each one says, I am Malcolm X. Um, this idea that kind of great personages are so influential and powerful that a spark of them lodges in everyone around them. Yes. Yes. You know, it also gives everyone the authenticity to authentically engage in the tradition. How come? Everyone has the soul of Moses within them, within their soul, and everyone is acting within that tradition. Okay. So they wouldn't have had it. They wouldn't have been able to engage without the soul of Moses. Oh, I don't know. This is my sermon on a sermon right here, I think, is what's happening. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. Uh, I mean, in Christianity, this idea is, of course, carried out by us being told to be imitators of Christ or to have the mind of Christ within us. Um, but I, what's interesting is for Christians, I'm not sure that that is assumed. You know, it's not like the spark of Christ is lodged within everyone, because if it was, why would we be in being told to have the mind of Christ or to, to work on this. Um, but maybe it's there. and We just need to spend time uncovering it or making it clear somehow through our action. Okay. So, so you, Daniel Bogard, you're carrying around a spark, spark of, of the soul of Moses in your core. Uh, you know, you know, what strikes um, me here is, uh, so again, this is coming out of a Muslim context. 
And Moses yeah. gets treated very differently by Jews living in a Muslim world than Jews living in a Christian world. Tell me. So right in the Muslim world with the emphasis on the, the greatest prophet for them, uh, Muhammad, there becomes this level of competition because the Torah itself says that Moses is the greatest of prophets, right? Uh, so at some level uh-huh. in the Muslim world, yeah. there is a comfort for Jews to treat Moses as our Muhammad. Whereas ah, in the okay. Christian context, it's actually the exact opposite impulse, which is to not turn Moses into our Jesus. Hmm. Right, right. Be- uh, because you don't want to say that Moses is divine, right? <laughs> I mean, that's that's probably where the, the breakdown comes, right? Like Christians make a surprising exactly. claim that neither Muslims nor Jews make. Uh, exactly. And actually, of the commentators living in Spain, a huge percentage of them end up viewing Christianity as a form of idol uh, worship, as long as they lived in the Muslim world. If they're living in the Christian world, they tend not to come to that position. Interesting. Why? Why do they tend not to come to that position? Just for political reasons and reasons of safety? Uh, yeah, probably political and pragmatic right. reasons. So uh, they might privately think yeah. it, but they're probably not going to write it down. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So this is one of those interesting places in Jewish Christian relationships. Uh, when you start digging into the theology and the history that, right, this makes people uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, okay. So because we want to shy away from discomfort, let's move on to the next Midrash, who is a uh, Luba Victor Rebbe. So who is this? The Lubavitcher Rebbe. Lubavitcher Rebbe. Okay. Tell me about Lubavitcher Rebbe. Okay. Um, one of the most significant rabbis of the 20th century, without question. Uh, and someone who has impacted probably in some way, many of our listeners. Hmm. Uh, so the Lubavitcher Rebbe is, uh, a ultra Orthodox rabbi. Uh, he was the head of the group known as Chabad. Uh, C-H-A-B-A-D. Right, which uh, the, the Jewish campus group is named after, or part of, maybe. Is a part of, exactly. So this is where a lot of people encounter them. They also are, uh, if you've ever encountered someone dressed like an ultra-Orthodox Jew in the middle of the street who asks you, are you Jewish? Are you Jewish? And then doesn't care about you once you say no, uh, that person was a Lubavitcher Rebbe, or excuse me, was a Chabad rabbi as well. Uh, so the Lubavitcher Rebbe, uh, it's an inherited position in these uh, Hasidic communities that come out of Eastern Europe. Uh, and his extremely insular ultra-Orthodox community, uh, with its very particular brand of ultra-Orthodoxy, the Lubavitcher Rebbe believed in a form of messianism where he thought that getting every Jew to be like him and his followers, his Hasidim, uh, would bring the Messiah. And so he sent out and it became the mission of this Jewish sect to effectively convert all Jews to their form of Judaism. Wow. Uh, Of course, that's not how they understand it within their internal context, right? They're on a messianic mission. Right, Uh, right. And so they show up and have huge presences on, you know, sort of typical liberal college campuses where 
Jewish kids who are growing up in the suburbs, going to their, you know, casual temples, sometimes maybe show up on campus and, uh, Chabad is waiting to invite them in and have them over for Shabbos meals and, uh, lots of booze. That's a big Chabad thing. Uh, so anyways, they're quite controversial within the Jewish world. And then they get even more controversial because the Rebbe dies and his followers towards the end of his life began proclaiming him as the Messiah. Whoa. And so there are now three different groups of Chabadniks. One evidently is, is quite common is the belief that the Rebbe was the Messiah. Um, then it breaks down into those who believe that the Rebbe was the Messiah and is coming back. Uh, that may sound a little familiar okay. to our Christian listeners as a story. It sure uh, does, one yeah. is the uh-huh. uh, belief that he never actually died. Uh, being here in Memphis, there are uh, other people of a similar cult who believe that the king never died. Um, and uh, uh, that was an Elvis joke, by the way. Uh, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, then the last group actually proclaims him as divine himself, which also may uh, sound familiar to some of our Christian listeners. So this is a significant break with, with mainstream Judea or any other form Huge. Of and so they're viewed by many other ultra-Orthodox groups as uh, heretics. Yeah. You know what it sounds like most in the Christian or semi-Christian world is Mormonism to some degree. Oh, interesting. Yeah. You know, because because Mormonism is such a, you know, claims claims Christ, but it's such a break from other Christianity that in all effects it's a separate religion. So, you know, in all effects, this may be a separate religion, but because religion is not the major factor in Jewish identity or is not the primary factor in Jewish identity, they're still solidly within the Jewish world. And actually the vast majority of the people that they serve and where their funding comes from are Jews who come from uh, the more classically liberal denominations who see a sense of authenticity and sort of post Holocaust survival of uh, quote unquote, authentic Jewish identity. Uh, right. Uh, this, these are people who they don't do it themselves, but they know that's the right way that it should be done. Wow. Um, so anyway, <laughs> they're a whole crazy movement, uh, solidly yeah. within the Jewish world to a large extent. Uh, one of the large institutional forces in the Jewish world today. Um, and we'll see when we look at this commentary, there's a reason that the Lubavitcher Rebbe was incredible. Okay, so this is what the Midrash says. And once again, it's referring to the pure olive oil and the everlasting lamp from evening to morning that it's raised. And it says, these verses contain a paradox. Everlasting flame implies a state of perpetuity and changelessness. From evening to morning implies fluctuating conditions of lesser and greater luminance. For such is our mission in life to impart the eternity and perfection of the divine to a temporal world and to do so not by annihilating or overwhelming the world's temporality and diversity, but by illuminating its every state and condition 
from evening to morning with the divine light. Right. It's beautiful. So when I first read that, it, yeah, in our, in our pre, you know, talk, pre-recording talk, I really liked it because, uh, you know, in Christianity, you also have these choices and one is to be kind of world rejecting and want to live totally within the divine. Um, and another is to, to seek to find the divine in this world, in the now, not look for it in other places. And I'm thoroughly in the camp of that second side, right? Like I, I am not looking, uh, for an afterlife that is going to make everything make sense or that, you know, that I, I desperately wish cause I dislike this world and all of its changes. Um, I, I want to find God here and now, um, which is very much like him. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, is that a, I mean, since, since this is such a strange movement within Judaism, is this a very strange thought within Judaism too? No. You know, what's interesting is the teachings of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Everyone basically agrees. This guy was brilliant and beautiful. Um, uh-huh. he, within the Orthodox world, people don't dislike him. They say that his followers have, um, perverted him. Have, ah, okay. Uh, and, okay. And this can be again, within the ultra Orthodox world, which is a very closed world. Um, I know people who won't count a Chabadnik, a follower of Chabad, in a minion in a Jewish prayer quorum, but will will count me, which is right again, very very interesting thing. Um, yeah. So you're better than a Chabadnik. <laughs> Chabadniks, according to them, know better and thus should be held to a higher standard, whereas I am like a child who was raised without education. Ah. I see. That is, that is, by the way, a technical Jewish legal category that they place me in. Interesting. Interesting. Kind of a slam on your parents. But, um, <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. So, uh, so we are really coming to the end. Um, there is one more here from the Talmud, which is just as the olive yields light, only when it is pounded, so our man's greatest potential is realized only under the pressure of adversity. So we have this world in which we can look for and find God illuminating the present moment and everything around us. But we have adversity, uh, sin, really, and uh, we become better under the, the pressure of this adversity. Our light yields more. Yeah, so we really we've got two different attempts at a sermon here. Right, pure olive oil crushed for the light. That's our verse, and so the, the Talmud takes that and uh, says that it's about our light only being released when we first are crushed a little bit. Uh, mm-hmm. The Hasidim, the, the more contemporary, living I don't know, 150 years ago, 200 years ago, take this and say that when one speaks crushing words of rebuke, presumably to a friend, it must be with the sole purpose of enlightening, illuminating, and uplifting one's fellow. Never, God forbid, to humiliate and break him, right? For them, they say, crushed for the light is the only reason you can legitimately crush. Yeah. I mean, this goes full circle. Like, I feel our, that our entire conversation today has really been about uh, relationship and, and culture and society. You know, how do we 
get along with each other? How do we recognize when um, something is being put on us that is wrong, that is not actually our sin, but the culture's sin? Um, but when we are in the wrong uh, or find our our loved ones, our, our, our fellow um, human beings in the wrong, how do we address that and restore community? Um, that's a lot from the description of an altar, I gotta say. Yeah. Like these are yeah, big, we, you know, I was a little worried whether we'd have an hour worth of stuff here today, but, uh, needless to say, we can ramble. We sure can. Well, we'll come, we've come to these questions before and we'll come to them again. Um, these are the questions of our time as well as Moses's time and probably any yeah. time. So, um, let's, let's finish for today. Um, so you your listeners have been listening to Lost in the Wilderness, a priest and a rabbi explore Exodus, which is made possible by the generosity of the Diocese of Southern Ohio and Christchurch Cathedral. Our theme music is by Brianna Kelly from her album All Things Are Being Made New. Uh, Daniel, anything you want to prom- promote as we end? Uh, you know, I'll promote the book on tape I have been uh, listening to. Uh, I've been listening to Tanahasi Coates's uh, newest book. We were eight years in power, I believe that's the name huh. of it. Okay, uh, highly, highly recommend it. Uh, yeah, yeah. If you're looking to sort of expand your thinking on contemporary racism and white supremacy, this is uh, a, a really great way to do so. Okay, that sounds great. Um, And I will just promote for the very last time, because it's happening in three days, the Exodus Colloquium, uh, which will be at All Saints on Saturday from 10 to 3. And uh, I'm really excited about it. I think it's going to be really good. So I hope people will join us. Uh, All right, dear listeners, we're saying goodbye now. Have a great week. Have a great week, everyone. 